Word of God comes to us this morning from the book of Acts. If you're following along in your own Bible, we're going to read in chapter 3, starting at verse 11. You can also follow along behind me on the screens. Uh, I believe that God has a word for each person in this room this morning. Uh, And so let us enter into this time with open hearts. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would take these words uh, and pierce them through right to our heart, God. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. And when Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses to this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Almighty God, we thank you for your word. Your holy word that comes to us through the scriptures. Lord, we praise you for the wisdom that we receive through your word. We ask, God, that you would meet with us now in this space and this time. That you would remove me and everything that that my flesh might wish to say today, and I ask, oh God, that you would replace that with your spirit, and that you would use this space and time to proclaim your gospel in our midst. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we would see our ears, that we would hear, open our minds, that we would come to know and understand your word, open our hearts, that we would feel its power. Then we ask, oh God, that you would open our hands, that we would then offer grace to the world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have any of you begun or gone through a midlife crisis? No, 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 none of you are old enough to have gone through a midlife crisis, I know. So let's think about our parents and the midlife crises that our parents went through. Maybe that would be easier for us to walk through together. You you know, I remember when my parents' midlife crisis hit, it was 1990, and it came in the form of vehicles. 
Uh, my, my dad, in 1990, went uh, out and one day came home with a car that he did not talk to anyone about before he went to purchase said car. And he came home, it was a red convertible Mazda Miata. <laughs> I mean, it, it's hard for me to think that a grown man uh, uh, would do such a thing, but he did, and I drove it, and I understand why. It was awesome. It was a go-kart that goes 100, okay? Uh, I drove it around 6'10 when I was uh, 16 years old because my truck was in the shop getting painted, and I won't tell you how fast I drove it, but it was awesome. And you could feel the power. We would, we would go to a late night uh, grocery run at the Randalls in Missouri City. And uh, it was kind of a, a dead space of Highway 6. We'd pull out. It'd be 1030 at night. And he wouldn't warn me. And boom, he would open it up. And, of course, it was a standard. He'd drop it into, into fifth whenever he was going about 100. He hit about 120. And then he'd pull up to the light and say, well, when it, when it needs to breathe, you have to let it breathe, son. <laughs> That was his midlife crisis. It had the, the, the lights that went like that, you know, that popped up, saying hello to everyone. And see, and, well, my mom in 1991 decided that she didn't want to be one-upped by uh, my dad's midlife crisis. She needed to have her own midlife crisis. She went out and got a Honda Prelude that also had the lights that did this because we are a Japanese midlife crisis family. And... Um, and, and so uh, she, she, she loved to drive that, and uh, we had tons of fun in those two cars. But a midlife crisis isn't just uh, kind of built uh, around uh, obtaining something. Uh, it's actually a reflection of uh, maybe what would better be known as an identity crisis. And an identity crisis can come at any point in time uh, throughout our lives. It, it, it does and often comes midlife because we've worked towards this one thing. We've, we've aimed at something for our entire lives and we stri we're striving after it. And once we arrived there, we then asked, is that all that there is for us? What is left now? And our identity is challenged. Or maybe for others of us, we, we aimed at this one thing and it never came to pass. And we worked and worked and, and did not achieve it. And then we had to ask ourselves, well, who am I if I'm not that thing that I thought I was to be now that I know I'm not to be that? When does that midlife crisis come? It, it, it might not come midlife, but it does come when our identity is called into question. And, and we find, find ourselves in, in, in an interesting time in human history because uh, our identity is constantly being defined for us by those outside of us. People are always looking at us and putting us in a category, whether you're young or you're old or whether you're white or brown or black or, or whether you're uh, a Republican or, 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 a, or a Democrat, conservative or liberal. They're trying to find some box to place you in, male or female, and then to say that they, can, I, they understand exactly who you are by the box that they've put you in. Well, we have an election coming up on Tuesday. I don't know if any of you heard. I, I actually, I, I do because I've seen some of you post on Facebook the I voted stickers. Good. 
I'm glad you voted. Uh, if you haven't, vote on Tuesday. But, but I want you to think, like, like, if someone knew who you voted for on Tuesday, they might assume that they could then categorize you in some way, shape, or form as though that vote sets the course for who you are. But does anyone here have someone that they could vote for that actually uh, can establish who they are for them? Of course not. That would be absurd. And that's not our goal, but others will judge us based upon this construct of our identity that they place upon us. But that's a false construct. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you today that none of those things define your identity. If you're here today, my prayer is that you come to know and understand that your identity is entirely in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who you are in Christ is who you are. And everything else falls away and plays second fiddle. Or maybe plays nothing at all. Because that, that, that identity in Christ is what defines our whole selves. But that's a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around. And it's an even harder thing for us to surrender to. Because it does take surrender it takes, it takes a reshaping, a reformatting of, of how we see and understand ourselves when we come to, to know Jesus Christ as Lord so that, that we no longer see ourselves in the categories of this world, but we see ourselves in the category of, of, of follower, believer, one who has faith in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and letting that define who we are. So when the pastors and the, and the worship team were preparing for this Lenten season and wanted to be sure that, that this identity in Christ was at the forefront of what we were doing, we were trying to, to, to figure out how we could help the people of God journey through this, knowing how difficult it is. And we began uh, seeing some of the, the pushback and some of the challenge to, to our identity in Christ as a, as a reflection or a parallel to the five uh, stages of grief. Some of you, you've heard about the five stages of grief. Uh, it's, it's a journey from, uh, from denial to anger to bargaining, depression, and finally acceptance that leads to hope. But one of the things about this, this five stages of grief is, is, is it's actually uh, not linear. It's not like you accomplish this and then you accomplish this and then you check that box and then you get there. Like you don't, you don't, you don't someday uh, magically arrive, but, but grief is a process that is nonlinear. And so when you draw it up on a whiteboard, you see arrows going from one to the next to the next to the next. But then the next thing you do is you draw arrows in reverse because as soon as you get through one, you could go back to the previous and then you draw a star of arrows in the center, so showing that each one of the five stages of grief point to one another. And so it's a non-linear path of grief. And I want you to know that is a reflection of what a journey of surrender looks like for us. Surrender doesn't, doesn't move from denial to anger to bargaining to depression 
to hope, we might have arrived at hope. We might have experienced hope. We might know the hope we have in Jesus, and yet the very next day or next moment experience denial again. And so this thing can bounce all over, but it is for us an understanding of where we are in any given moment and what we are doing on a journey in hope, knowing who we are and whose we are. Jesus Christ the Lord at the center. And so I want us to to begin today in stage one. Stage one is denial. And for for many of us, if we sit back and we think about stage one denial and we think about it in the Christian Christian context, we think that we're going to have read Peter this morning, that we're going to think about Peter, the one who Jesus foretold would uh, deny him three times before the cock crows. And even when Jesus was arrested and then was awaiting his trial, Peter uh, there in that courtyard denied Jesus three times. And we could have done that. And that's an interesting thing and and supports this nonlinear movement that, that Peter the one who already experienced the hope in Christ, who called him the Messiah, the Son of God, who who understood who he was, who was a disciple, and then became uh, an apostolic leader, the one on whom Christ would build his church. That one still yet denied. But but we're not going to start there because I want to take a step back, not not in chronological order, but actually in in spiritual order, so we could step back and see uh, what it means to, to take that First step from denial towards surrender to our identity in Christ. And that first step comes uh, for us in, in Acts chapter 3, and, and we, we hear a reference to a story that, that, that is familiar to some of our ears. It's the story of Peter and John that are walking uh, through uh, the temple gate called Beautiful, and they see a lame man begging there, and the beggar asks for money, and, and Peter and John say back to him, a silver and gold, none do I have for you, but in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And the man is healed by the power of Jesus' name, and does does stand up and walks. And so we have reference to that. The, the beggar then, the, then is, is, is jumping and leaping and praising God. And, and, and as Peter and John proceed into the temple, we then find ourselves in verse 11. And the man, the beggar, who has been healed is clinging, holding on to Peter and John. And then we find uh, those that we can relate to this morning. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. All the people. We need to take a moment and, and, and work through what we might know or could assume about this all the people. Who are all the people? Uh, what would they have experienced? What would they know? And what were they coming into this situation with? And to to do that, we might want to take a a step back to the beginning of chapter 2, and we'll see the Pentecost story. Now, now we might not often enough connect the biblical narrative together so that we could see that it's it's not just disconnected stories that we hear in one specific sermon or another, but we actually find ourselves tying the, 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 the... the the text together and see it as one giant story. And so here we have in Acts 2, Pentecost. You'll remember that Pentecost is is this gathering of of the 
the disciples of Jesus. Jesus is risen from the dead. He revealed himself to them, and, and then Jesus directs them to wait, and they wait. And as they're waiting on Pentecost Sunday, the, the Holy Spirit comes upon the people and binds them together so that their differences are no longer significant, but their unity in Christ is the thing that defines them. And the people are astounded at what's happening and wondering what's going on, and, and it's this beautiful witness, and there's this magnificent sermon that invites others into this, that this spirit that has come upon them is not something that's withheld to a small group of people, but the spirit of God is open and available to everyone. And that happens, uh, that happens at Pentecost. And then I want you to remember how many people come to faith in Jesus that day. On Pentecost Sunday, 3,000 were added to their number. That's glorious, it's magnificent, and it's what we focus most of our attention on when we hear about Pentecost. We hear about all the 3,000 that were added to the number. But have you ever thought about the one, two, three, or more thousand people that were there that were not added to their number? Those that were there that bore witness to this but were not convinced. Those that bore witness to it but denied that this was gospel for them. This happened in the temple context, and so when we do think about the 3,000 and we think about those others that were around, we could see how this thing moves forward because the disciples now have uh, the beginning of, of the church of Jesus Christ formed for us today. And, and, and when we see that movement, we see how things start to look different, and people can see that those that follow Jesus are living differently those that, that were living differently then, then started like holding things in common and caring for one another and socioeconomic stratuses were, were crushed into one and people were unified with one another and connected to, to one another around the word of God and in relationship to one another and they cared for each other. And this living differently stood out for everyone to see. And not only that, they, they were meeting together daily they were going to the temple to meet together daily, and, and they were attending to the apostles' words, but they were also gathering and relating to one another. And this was happening in the temple. So I want you to think about all those people, all those that rushed over to see this healing that had taken place, and what they had seen over the days and weeks prior that they had seen the falling of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, that they had borne witness to lives changed and a new form of community taking shape, that they had seen people gathering in the temple for a different sort of purpose. Now, what do we know about all those people? All those people had made a some, most or all of those people had made a conscious decision to deny Jesus and the offering of grace. That they had chosen a different path. And so whenever Peter and John heal and then everyone rushes in, they know something about the crowd that is gathering. And they come to understand the gospel witness that needs to be articulated. 
You see, these people uh, that gather, all those people, they might fall in one or, or two categories. Uh, the, the first would be that, that they are uh, self-reliant people. These would be Jewish folks that want to strive after living according to the law, that understand that the, 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 the law of Moses has been given to the Jewish people, and they are walking in that way, working to be obedient to every letter of the law. By the law, I mean uh, the Ten Commandments. By the law, I mean the book of Leviticus, where every uh, whole Bible reader goes to fall asleep. Uh, if any of you have ever attempted to read the entire Bible in order and you got past Leviticus, you have arrived. And, and you can make it, I promise. But, but these are people that, that believed that day after day, if they would strive after the law, if they would work hard enough at obeying the law, then they could get there. Some of them even believed that they had gotten there, that they, they had been made perfect through the law. Some of us can relate to those kind of people. Some of us have an understanding of Christianity as, as a way of living and a way of acting and a way of behaving as though it has all these rules and regulations and, and that if we would just order our lives in this specific way, we could achieve perfection. We could achieve holiness. We could earn grace. But, but that's not how it was structured. But we live like that all too often. Those kinds of folks might be us, self-reliant folks that believe holiness is up to us. The other kind of folks that might have been encompassed in that phrase, all those people, might have been folks that felt defeated. These are people that, that are working to live according to the law. They're ordering their lives uh, after their understanding of the Jewish faith, and they go regularly, commit their lives to seeking after holiness, and they're striving to do exactly what the law says to do. But day after day after day, they are beaten down by their imperfection and brokenness, and they are confronted with the truth that they are not enough. And these people feel broken and defeated and empty. And all those people might be all of us who strive after holiness and work to earn grace. But day after day, we feel like we are constantly messing up. And we are missing the boat. Both of those kind of people are striving after healing and wholeness. This, this new sort of thing to be done in them. And so whenever they witness this beggar, this, this man who had been lame, this, this one that was so commonly known, he, he sat at the, uh, at the 
same spot every day and everybody knew who he was. He was the beggar at the beautiful gate and they walked by and they saw him and people, when they had the resources, might have given him some change. But this day is different because now he's standing up, he's walking, he's been healed and restored and now he's following Peter and John and everybody, all of those people, the, the, the self-righteous and the broken and defeated are all coming around and saying, what is this healing that you have? How can I get some of that? What's going on here that I could experience, could receive? Maybe we could put ourselves in that place and say, I want that healing as well. And if we could, just for a moment, identify there and rush towards the feet of the apostles and say, what is this that's going on here? We could hear from Peter the word that he has for us today. He says to, he says to the, the, the crowds, he, he lays out the, the story of, of Jesus and the interaction of the Jewish people with Jesus on in his final days, and in verse 11, he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, he's glorified Jesus. And then here's, here's the account of who we are in this story. You, we, handed Jesus over to be killed. We disowned him before Pilate. And, and even though Pilate had decided to let him go, we disowned the holy and righteous one of God and asked that a murderer be released instead of Jesus. We killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we're witnesses of this, Peter says. Peter says to the crowds, you disowned Jesus. He was one of you and you could have been one with him. You could be one with him, but you disowned him. You, you rejected him. He was right there for you to, to follow and you turned your back on him and went the other direction. You, you chose someone, something else over him. You had this opportunity to follow and yet you chose to follow other things. In summary, you denied Jesus. But Peter doesn't leave them there. That rebuke is not a rebuke of judgment, but it's a rebuke of invitation. He doesn't say, because you denied Jesus, there's nothing for you. Quite the contrary. He, he, he tells them, I, I, I know, in verse 17, he said, brothers, I know that you did this out of ignorance. You just couldn't wrap your mind around it. It was too awesome, too great, too glorious for you to even receive. You were walking down a path, maybe a path of your own self-righteousness, or maybe you were walking down a path uh, and you were in such darkness you couldn't see it. But whatever it was, it was rooted in ignorance. And so I understand, I, I've been there, I've been a denial. 
denier as well. And so I have something for you. Jesus has something for you. And then he breaks it down and tells us all that it takes to move from our denial into the hope we have in Jesus Christ. To move from denial into a space of surrender. He says in verse 19, all you got to do, brothers and sisters, is repent and turn to God. If you repent and turn to God, there is grace for you, and you will be wrapped up into the loving arms of Jesus. He will offer grace to you, and then you will be found in him and can say with conviction, my identity is as a follower of Jesus Christ. Nothing else in this world can define me again. And, 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 and I'm no longer going to deny Jesus, but I'm going to deny everything else for the sake of Jesus. And I will follow him all my days. Brothers and sisters, if you can put yourself in that same space as all those people, if you've witnessed healing in your own life at one point in time or in someone else's life in this room or someone else's life who's not in this room. If you've ever witnessed healing and then you sought after pursuing it, it's there for you today. Repent and turn to Jesus. And when you do, you'll be welcomed in. Amen. Would you pray with me? Brothers and sisters, I am so thankful for the gift of your gospel, this good news that we have, that it is not of our own strength, but it is only by the strength of your Son that we are saved. Let us be found in you. Let us be found in that truth. And no matter how overwhelming our denial might seem to us, in this space, in this time, in the silence of our hearts, we ask, O oh God, that you would receive our holy surrender. We surrender to your grace. We surrender to your love. Lord, you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. Forever. I thank you for these children, our brothers and sisters that gather in your name. Lord, be glorified in our surrender.